Okay, hello, good afternoon. Are you all enjoying the Science Festival so far? Yeah. Excellent. Well, hopefully that's gonna continue over the next hour. Um, here we have Dr. Helen Scales, who um, is a marine biologist and broadcaster and author and why can't scientists just do one job anymore? Um, she's had two fantastically successful books, one of which looks at seahorses and the more recent of which was a Guardian bestseller looking at seashells and mollusks. Um, and today she's here to talk to us about whales. So please welcome Dr. Helen Scales. Thank you. And this is on. Fantastic. Hello, thank you very much. It's lovely to be back in the Cambridge Science Festival. I hope you're all having a wonderful festival. And thank you for coming along today. Um, now, um, as you were coming in, I was trying to play you some songs, which were just about run out, I think, but um, some special recorded songs of people and of whales uh, singing. Um, and I'm going to tell you a bit more about those a little bit later, and I shall play you some more as well. Um, but first of all, I want to know if any of you on your way into the lecture this morning, this afternoon, um, did you see a whale? Has anyone seen a whale today? Have you seen a whale? Anyone else? A few hands up. Where was the whale you saw? Just back there. Yes, there is a wonderful, hopefully a few of you did come in this way, just straight at the back of the hall. There's a fantastic whale skeleton, the Cambridge whale, um, which has uh, been put um, in the front of the new developments of the Museum of Zoology. Um, it's sadly not open at the moment, but I'll tell you a little bit more about that wonderful, is that all right? Yes, there we go. The story of the Cambridge whale begins about 150 years ago. Um, in a place called Norman's Bay on the south coast of Britain, a place in Sussex. Um, and this, um, this is the whale. This is the whale, um, a picture, a photograph of it, the one that's right behind us, right next to our lecture theatre today. Um, it washed up in November 1865. This is what it looked like. And apparently this was quite the sensation um, when this happened. And something like 40,000 people um, came to have a look at this extraordinary whale that ended up on the beach. And here's a few of them there with some nice looking hats. Um, uh, the whale eventually, um, the skeleton was exposed, the rest of the body was, was got rid of. Um, apparently it was put on display for a little while at the local cricket club. And then, <laughs> and then in 1866, the museum here in Cambridge bought the whale and brought it here to put on display. So first of all, it was on display inside. Um, this is a very tiny red dot. That's the whale um, when it was in the museum quite a long time ago. And then in 1996, it was moved outside. So um, had you come to this lecture a couple of years ago, you would have actually walked straight past that whale outside. It was really just at the back of the lecture hall. Um, but a couple of years ago, as part of the renovations of the Museum of Zoology, it was packed up, cleaned up, um, put into storage. And then just um, recently, it's been recreated and placed in its new home at the front of the museum. And it really is a fantastic thing. Now, this creature, we, we may not, um, we may not have never know why it washed up on that beach, but we can certainly know a fair amount about what happened during its lifetime. Um, it's a fin whale, which is also known as fin, the finback or the common rorqual. And um, this is what it would have looked like uh, when it was still alive. It's a fantastic, fantastic beast. Um, so things about this whale that we, we know probably happened or certainly happened was that um, its mother would have been pregnant for almost a year. So there's a really long gestation in these whales, up to 11 or 12 months. We also know that when it was born, it's a he, so this is a male whale we've got, and when he was born, he would have been about six and a half meters long, 
and weighed almost two tons. So that's pretty amazing for a baby. Uh, maybe even more amazing for the mother to have gone through that, but well done. Uh, so that was how this our whale began its life. He would have then spent probably six or seven months with his mother, suckling. He's a mammal. We'll talk more about that. Um, but suckling milk from his mother until he reached about 11 meters long, about 36 feet. And then he would have gone off to live a life on his own. Um, so there are various things we, knew, we will know um, did happen during this whale's life. This particular one grew to about 21 meters. And that's the skeleton that we've got today. It's about 21 meters long. And we've estimated that it probably weighed about 80 tons. So a really enormous creature this one was. Um, we don't actually know how old that whale was when it died, but it could have lived for up to 100 years, which is amazing. And, um, and it swam quite fast through the ocean. It's quite a fast whale. They swim for up to sort of 40 to 46 kilometers an hour, which is pretty good for a whale. And it would have swum around probably the Atlantic Ocean. There are fin whales that live all around the world in various different populations, but we can probably guess that this one was an Atlantic whale because that's where it ended up. And it would have swum around in pods possibly of 10 or 100 other finbacks or fin whales. And one of the things they would have done when they're swimming around is this. This is a video shot um, off the coast of Canada by some whale watchers. And you'll see in a minute one of the things that whales, fin whales, do quite a lot of as they're swimming around. Yeah. Rather wonderful. So that's the fin whale feeding. I would be very excited if I just seen a fin whale that close. Um, so I'll tell you some more about, um, about how they feed in a minute, and that's a very important part of whale biology. Um, but uh, the other thing we know about uh, this whale is that they would have probably dived, this one would have dived to about 500 meters beneath the waves, so that's pretty good, and maybe been able to hold its breath uh, for about 30 minutes. Now, it's a male, so we also know that it would have made uh, some songs. It would have actually called out to other whales in the ocean, because the males, as we know, uh, of various different species of whales are the ones that sing. The females tend to stay quite quiet. Now, fin whales uh, have quite low songs. They're really at the bottom end of the, are at the, the range of sounds that we can hear. So really down there, kind of, we can hear down to about 20 hertz, and then possibly even downward sort of deep sounds that elephants make. Um, this is a recording of an, a fin whale song. It's been sped up a bit so we can hear it properly. They combine them into patterns that last about 15 minutes, and then they repeat their songs. The fin whales can sing for days and days, so they keep, keep on singing. And um, one of the big mysteries about whales um, is that we don't really know why they sing their songs. It's actually it's just still um, a great wonder as to what's going on with whale songs. So we actually can't answer that question at the moment. It's the males that do it, so it's probably got something to do with sex. Um, something to do with attracting females, competing with other males, we don't really know. But they do sing fantastic, wonderful songs, um, and one of the deepest songs of all the whales. Now, finbacks or fin whales are the second biggest animal that is alive today. So, and I suspect there might be some people in the audience who know what the, the, the biggest animal that's alive um, today. There's a good hand up there. What's, what's the biggest animal? The blue whale, exactly, that's great. So the blue whale is the biggest animal we think that has ever lived. Here's a lovely picture of a blue whale. They're certainly the biggest animals that are alive today. 
Um, there were maybe some dinosaurs that sort of maybe came close. So the titanosaurs, um, there is a species we think probably grew to about 39 meters long, um, but it wasn't actually as heavy, probably wasn't as heavy as a blue whale. They might have, the, the blue whales actually can be up to 190 tons. They're absolutely enormous. Um, but so we know that blue whales probably mostly grow to about 30 meters. Um, and if you want to have a feel for how big um, a 30-meter whale is, you're going to have a fantastic chance to do that later this year. The London's Natural History Museum, um, you may know, has moved Dippy the Diplodocus out of the front um, entrance hall. Um, and later on this year, they're going to install um, their blue whale skeleton, their genuine blue whale skeleton. It's going to be put diving down from the ceiling. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. So you're going to be able to stand underneath this enormous 30-meter whale. But I think I also want to get an idea of how big 30 meters is. And we're just going to see if this works. And I would like some help, I think. If you're up for it, I'm going to just choose the first two rows. Would everyone in the first two rows be happy to give me a hand in showing how big 30 meters is? If you don't want to, you don't feel you have to. But if you'd like to all stand up. I need about 30 people. So I think that's about right. If you'd like to come around, first, of you, the f like first row, come around here. Brilliant. Thank you very much. If you'd just like to um, stand along the front here, that's it. Um, and if you go to the end, and I want everyone to stand about this far apart. If you can just stick your hands out, that's about a meter. So how many people have we got first? Brilliant. Just, yes, if you could go just in front of the, yeah, go down towards Jonathan there. Brilliant. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Right. So that's, and if you could just spread your arms out, about like that. Yeah, that looks good. So that's about ten meters. You're going to need some more. Right. Would you lot like to give me a hand up this side here? If you don't want to help, you can sit, but you, if you'd like to come and stand. But would you like to peel through? Second row, is that all right? Thank you, fantastic. <laughs> I need you to do the same. I think we're gonna have to bend our blue whale. It's not gonna fit straight across the st stage. So if you could like make your way up the stairs, again with your arms about this far, no, about this far apart. You're gonna, oh, actually, that's a good idea. Why don't you guys go right up to the top? Because I think we're gonna probably need that. How many more have we got? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, I'm going to stop. I'll stop you there for a second. If you could, I think we've gone too far, actually. You can probably come back down. You, that's it. You lot, I think there's about ten of you. Is that right? Okay, I think that's about one, two, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine, ten. That'll do. We're going to go this way now. So if you could all peel up here, about this far apart. Fantastic. And you guys are going to come up this side. Brilliant. So I need another ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Right, I need three more people. Three more people? Yeah, you can come. Two here. Do you want to come and help me measure my whale? One more. One more volunteer. Someone who's quite nearby. You can just hop out. I can do it. Yeah, Jonathan will do it. That's yeah, fine. Great. Right. How many have we got? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And if you could all stand about this far apart. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. Let's have a look. I think that's roughly 30 meters. Now, whales can't bend quite as much as that. But if you can imagine that uh, that would be the head end over there. Give us a wave. That's the head of the blue whale. Fantastic. And the tail is over here, give us a wave. Um, they are incredibly big, fantastic big creatures. So thank you very much. Big round of applause to our whale demonstrators. That's fantastic. So, um, so the finbacks, the fin whales and the blue whales are the two biggest living creatures we have today. They're the two biggest uh, whales we have swimming through the oceans. But there's also lots of other wonderful whales and other close relatives that we have swimming around the seas today. So I would just like to introduce you now to the cetaceans. Now, this is a group of mammals, um, including the whales and various other creatures 
that have adapted brilliantly for living in the oceans. So um, first up, we've got, well, you can, you can divide the cetaceans into two main groups. You've already met the fin whale, and they're one of the baleen whales. Now, you can figure out which group your whale fits into by looking inside its mouth. And if they have fantastic plates of hairy stuff that's made out of keratin, the same stuff that our hair and fingernails is made of, called baleen. If they've got this in their mouth, then they're a baleen whale. And this is, this is a humpback whale. And as that video I showed you before of the fin whale opening up its enormous mouth and engulfing all that water, it was feeding using these hairy plates um, in its mouth. And it's filter feeding. So these guys, they're the biggest of all the whales, and they eat generally quite tiny food. Bit, bits of plankton, tiny little animals, crustaceans, little fish. And they engulf enormous mouthfuls of water, squeeze that out through these plates. They have maybe three or 400 long plates with bits dangling down from them, made of keratin, and that catches the food. And then every so often, the whale, the whale will use its tongue, that's its pink tongue you can see there, to scrape the food off that baleen and swallow down its food. So we've got about 15 species of baleen whales in the oceans. They are all the biggest ones. Here are some of them. Uh, we've got the humpback whale. He's a baleen whale. Um, the sai whale, it's a lovely picture here of um, a, a mother with its calf. Um, we've got the North Atlantic right whales. Now, they're quite an endangered species. It's thought there's only about three or 400 of these guys left um, at the moment. We've got bowhead whales. Now, these are wonderful creatures. They live for a very, very long time. There's a lovely story about a bowhead whale that was discovered a few years ago um, in the Arctic, which is where they live. And it had a harpoon tip buried in its skin. And it was a type of uh, weapon that was only used about 100 years ago on the coast um, of North America when whaling was really at its height. And so we know from that that probably this particular bow bowhead whale had survived an attack from, from whalers and continued to live. And so we can estimate how old it was. And we think they probably, this individual whale with the harpoon tip lodged in its blubber, the great surviving whale that didn't get caught, he was probably 211 years old, which is absolutely extraordinary. They are amazingly long-lived creatures. So those are the baleen whales. Now, the other group of whales, and there's lots more species, because in total there's, there's about 80 species of whales, and only 15 of them are baleen whales. The rest, if you open up their mouths, you'll find teeth. So these are the tooth whales, also called the odontocetes. Now, the biggest of those guys is the sperm whale. They grow to up to about 20 meters long, so not quite as big as our blue whale, but still pretty amazing. Um, and they're all hunters. They have teeth, uh, which they use to catch fish and squid, and some of them even catch other mammals in the oceans. But the rest of the odontocetes are generally quite um, sm a lot smaller. Um, within, the, within the toothed whales, we've got various other groupings, um, things that we call superfamilies. And a really important one is the oceanic dolphin superfamily, and it's got various members in it of things you might recognize, lots of lovely dolphins, like this Atlantic spotted dolphin, and a white-sided dolphin. We've got the Irrawaddy river dolphin that lives in India, and a lovely harbor porpoise. There are also some rare and really beautiful odontocetes that belong to this group. This is the hourglass dolphin. These live in Antarctica, and they're very rarely seen. Um, quite, quite beautiful things. Um, but we also see in this group of the oceanic dolphins, we see some things that we call whales. Um, and they're kind of in between size, really. They're not as big as the baleen whales. They're maybe not as small as some of the, the dolphins. But we've got things like the, uh, the orca, the killer whales up the top. 
lovely beluga whales, which also live in the Arctic. We've got pilot whales, which we'll come back to. And narwhals, have you heard of narwhals, these wonderful creatures? They're actually cetaceans, they're kind of whales that have one, well, the males have one great big long tooth that sticks out the front. And people used to sell them and pretend that they were unicorn horns and so that they had magic properties and things. And it's all nonsense, but it really generally came from narwhals. And they, again, live up in the, in the Arctic. So what we can see from this is that actually there isn't a strict biological definition of what a whale is and what a dolphin or a porpoise is. They're kind of just mixed up. They're in various different parts of the, the family of the cetaceans and within different superfamilies. And really, it's just that the big ones are the ones we call whales. Um, and the sort of medium-sized ones are whales, and then the smaller ones are various types of dolphin and porpoise. Now, there are other um, superfamilies within this toothed whale group. There's, a, there's the South American river dolphins, including this funny-looking cat from the Amazon, the Boto. Um, another big group, another superfamily are the beaked whales, and this guy is awesome. He is a record-breaking whale. Now, this is the Cuvier's beaked whale. And they dive the deepest of any mammals that we know of. So the deepest record we have is, it's almost two miles, 2,992 uh, meters. And I believe this whale dived for um, 137 minutes. Imagine holding your breath for 137 minutes. Absolutely amazing. And that's what this guy did. So, so the QVA's beach whale is um, an amazing record breaker. Um, you might remember a couple of years ago in um, the River Thames, there was a whale that came in. Unfortunately, didn't make its way out again. Um, that was a beaked whale, not a cuvier's beaked whale, but a different species within this, within this family. And then this is some footage of another beaked whale. These are the Trues beaked whales. Now, this came out in the news just a few days ago. This is the first ever footage that's ever been filmed of this species. Um, it was caught by some scientists in the Azores in the middle of the Atlantic. And they, they're so difficult to find. This is the first time anyone's actually put, um, put a camera in the water and seen them. Um, and they're recognized by, they've got the slightly white bit on their head, which they call the beanies. It looks like they're wearing a little white hat. Um, so these guys are incredibly rare as well. So another wonderful member of the beaked whales. So there you go. So that's the cetaceans. So now we can see that the really big ones, the green ones here, which are all facing the right-hand side, they are the baleen whales with those plates in their mouth that use to feed. We've got a few slightly, um, not quite so big, but um, still fairly chunky um, toothed whales and then lots of very small and lovely dolphins and porpoises, which also belong to the toothed whales. Now, how did we get to the point of having all of these lovely cetaceans swimming around our oceans? So the question I'm really asking is, how did cetaceans evolve? Well, like us, cetaceans and whales and dolphins are mammals, but they are wonderfully adapted for living in water. Now, I like to spend quite a bit of my time, if I can, in the water. Um, I've even learned to free dive and hold my breath and, and do it for about three minutes. So I think the QVA's beach whale definitely wins. Um, and, um, I've and I've dived down to 20 meters on my own without, uh, without scuba. Really, again, not that great compared to a whale. They are amazingly well adapted to living in water. Now, there are other aquatic animals, that um, mammals, that have, uh, have evolved to kind of deal with being in the water. We've got things like seals and walrus. They spend a bit of their time on land. They come back to have their babies. Um, there are otters, and they still have their legs, so they can walk around if they want to. And really, the only other group of mammals that are fully aquatic are the manatees, which are another lovely group of animals. There's actually only four species of these sea cows, um, including the dugong. 
And, and they are fully aquatic. They don't come out of the water at all. Um, they basically couldn't. I mean, could you imagine them? What would that do on land? I don't think it would get them very well. Um, and I do love manatees. They are wonderful things, but I have to confess, they aren't quite as exquisitely adapted to life in the oceans as whales and dolphins. They really only live in shallow waters, so around the edges of the sea um, into some fresh waters. They don't dive anywhere near as deep or swim as fast as some of the whales. And they come from a different group of the mammals than the whales. So they're actually not very closely related. They went back to the water on their own. So if we want to tell the story of how cetaceans became to dominate the oceans as the really the prime wonderful mammals that swim through the seas today, we have to go back quite a long way in time. So here's my geological time scale um, from the beginning, where we are at the top with that truck back in time to the bottom. And the beginning of the story really is about 380 million years ago when fish left the water. Now this is a quite a simplified version of what went on. We basically had some fish that were swimming around quite happily in the ocean. And then very gradually, over time, over millions of years, um, oh, what is that other thing actually? It's got a better pointer on the back of this one. It's a bit too green. Do you like green a bit better? There we go, I think we do. So, fish swimming around in the ocean slowly evolved, basically evolved legs. And um, we've got a really lovely series of fossils that have now recently been uncovered over the last few decades that show us how that happened. One of the more recent ones is this chap, Tiktaalik, um, kind of halfway between a fish um, and a land-living creature. It's got little legs. It probably spent some of its time in the water, and it could also haul itself out. Um, it had lungs, <coughs> could breathe air, um, but it wasn't fully aquatic, and it wasn't fully terrestrial. It was sort of in between. It's the kind of fossil that Charles Darwin would have absolutely loved, because he was trying to explain how species evolved from one to another, and it's that in-between bit that's quite difficult to imagine. How do you have half a fish? Well, this is half a fish. So that's great. Um, now, if we look at the um, sort of evolutionary family tree of animals, you can see that down the bottom, we've got our lovely fish, things like sharks, um, the ray fin fishes, which is most of the fish that we see today, the teleos. Then we've got this group, the, um, the lobe fin fish, and it was amongst these guys, lungfish, that have lungs and um, coelacanths. And it was amongst these guys that, that um, some of the fish decided it was time to come out and live um, on land. So we, they evolved what we call the tetrapods. So those are any vertebrates, like with, with tetrapods, we have four limbs, any of those animals with four, uh, with four legs. And first along came the amphibians, then the reptiles, including birds, and the dinosaurs and things, and then right up the top, we have got the mammals. That's where we come in. So if we look back at our um, geological time frame, we've got fish leaving the water. Then the first mammals appeared about 200 million years ago, uh, million years ago. So there was quite a big break between when the fish came out and the mammals first evolved. Then if we wind a bit further forward, something quite important happened about 65 and a half million years ago when the dinosaurs went extinct. Up to that point, the reptiles were really in charge on land. They were doing rather brilliantly and the mammals were sort of hiding in the shadows. And after that, it was, it was our turn. The mammals took over the earth, really. But then not that much longer after that, about 50 million years ago, something very interesting happened. And I'm going to tell you a bit about what happened 50 million years ago by what I've got in this box. It was going to help me tell the story of um, how the whales evolved and where they came from. So I've got this out here. And what I have is this. 
Now I hope everyone's going to get a good look on. I'm going to put it down there for a minute. It's going to be on the screen in a second. And this is a fossil that a friend of mine gave me very kindly. He was um, uh, diving in a river in North America um, where, there you go, that's it. Um, he dives in a river where lots of fossils accumulate, and he brought this back for me. And it's actually part of a sperm whale that was ex um, a species that's now extinct, but that was alive um, about 15 to uh, 10 to 15 million years ago in the middle of the Miocene. And it is part of it is an original fossil from part of a sperm whale. And this fossil plays a really important part in the story of how whales evolved. And I think I would like three volunteers who would like to come and have a closer look at my fossil and maybe try and guess where on the, um, I'm going to do a sort of game of where on the sperm whale does this bone go? So who reckons they might have an idea of where this might go? Now there's a hand, little girl in the middle there, do you want to come down? Yep, you. Um, who's up at the back? Because the people at the back never get a chance. Do you want to come up from the corner right back there? And then one from over here. How about a chap at the back there with a stripy sleeve? Do you want to come down? Yep, that's you. Come. Brilliant. Thank you very much. So this is my bit of extinct whale, and I would like you all to have a little go. So, what's your name? Waylon. Waylon. Would you like to have a, have a feel? Don't drop it. Um, <laughs> it's quite tough, so it's probably all right, but have a look and see what do you think it might be. Well, you have a think about that. I'll hand it on to the next yeah. person. You have a think. Hi, what's your name? Lucy. Hi, Lucy. What do you think? Have a little look, and I'll get you to, to decide in a minute. I'm going to get you a pointer so you can... Uh, have a good look at that. All right, now let's pass it on. Who have we got here? What's your name? Alice. Hi, Alice. Are you okay with one arm? I hope you haven't. You've, what have you done to your arm there? You sprained your foot. That's, that's very sore. I hope it gets better soon. Anyway, have a look. What do you think? Take a good look at that. Excellent. All right, well, I'm going to take that away. We'll start with Waylon. Now, if you press that button at the top, you can get this little green blob and tell us where you think, where do you think it might be? Around there. Around there. Down by the tail. Okay. That's a good, good guess. All right, now Lucy, where do you think it might go? Um, oh, press the, press that one at the top with a little club. Around there in the middle of the, of the middle of the spine. Okay, good guess. And who? Right, what's your guess? Right at the end, what do you think? You think the tail as well? Okay. Oh, oh, you changed your mind. Ah, oh, well, I don't know if I'm allowing that. I think first answers only. What, what, what do you think now? A tooth or part of the skull. Okay. Right, well, I'm going to say none of you are right, but I'm quite glad because that means I get to be the one with the clever answer. No, not really. But that's a fantastic guess. Thank you very, very much. I'm going to get you to sit down, and then I'm going to tell you where this actually is. But thanks. Big round of applause to our volunteers. Now, um... Waylon was the closest with his second guess on it's something to do with the skull. Um, it isn't in the tail, um, but this is actually um, the ear bone of an extinct sperm whale. Um, it's part of the middle ear. It's a thing called the auditory bulla, and it went here at the end of their skull. Now, the reason that I wanted to show you this to you is that it does play a really important part in how whales evolve. Now, if we look at a whale skeleton, and, and do go and look at the, the, the fin whale we've got at the back after the lecture, you know, it's very different to the skeleton of, a, of another kind of four-legged mammal. It obviously hasn't got back legs. Um, they have, well, the skeleton doesn't show us this, but they do have these lovely tails which help them to swim really well through the ocean. I wish I had a tail like that. 
top face there. Um, their front legs have turned into flippers. So there's lots of anatomical changes that we've seen in whales that have helped them to become very good at living in the oceans. But hearing is a very important thing too. It's particularly important for whales in the way they live their lives. And when those first whales' ancestors moved into the oceans, they probably had a pretty hard time hearing. Because for us, land-dwelling mammals, we're adapted to hearing in air. Um, and if you go swimming and duck your head under the water, um, you'll probably have noticed that it's quite hard to hear anything, or it's all quite noisy and you can't really figure out where sounds are coming from. And that's because, the way our, because of the way our ears work. So this is the picture of a human ear. Now, what happens basically when we hear things is that vibrations in the air come into our big flappy ears here. And we have a hole that goes into our heads towards our middle ear. This is the a canal that's filled with air. So the vibrations coming along here, they make the eardrum at the end vibrate. That's a bit of skin that vibrates like a drum. This, in turn, makes three little bones, the malleus, the incus, and the stapes. They all vibrate as well. And then eventually that makes this part vibrate, the cochlea, the inner ear. It's a bit of your ear that's filled with fluid, and it's got little hairs inside. So the stapes, when that's jiggling around, because it's been jiggled by all the vibrations coming through from the air, it makes the fluid inside your middle ear vibrate, and those little hairs waggle, and that's is what uh, transmits signals to your brain telling you that you've heard something. So that's how our hearing works. But if you jump into the water, this bit of your ear floods. And you'll probably remember that sound you get when you've got water gurgling around inside your head and you want to get it out and it's really annoying. That's because water is in your canal here. And the reason it's hard to hear when you've got water in your ears is because, um, really because water is more dense than air. It dampens down the vibrations in your inner eardrum here. So that's not vibrating as much as it was. And basically, that makes it quite hard for you to hear anything. Now, the other thing that's going on when you jump in the water is that you're not only hearing sounds coming into your ears through the air or through the water, but you're also getting sounds all around your head conducting and vibrating through your skull. Now, this doesn't happen in air because air is much less dense than your skull. And um, basically, those sound waves bounce back off. And all the stuff you hear is actually just going in your ears. But in the water, that density is um, much greater, and you do get these vibrations coming through your, your head. And so actually, that's one reason why it's hard to figure out where sounds are coming from, because they're all just kind of bombarding your head from all directions. Now, if we go back to our, um, our whales, we know that this is the closest living relative of the whales today, a hippo. Um, this is through genetic studies. So the studies of DNA show us that these are the closest living relatives of whales. Now, they actually, hippos only evolved about 15 million years ago. So it wasn't that there was a hippo that became a whale. The hippos later on became quite aquatic. They're not as good as hippos. They're clearly not as good as whales. But they do like to swim around a bit, and they're quite good um, in rivers. Um, so, but they do share, they share a common ancestor that lived um, at least 50 million years ago, probably a bit earlier than that. Um, so that's where we know they come from. They're a type of ungulate, which are the hoofed animals. They have even-toed uh, hooves, uh, including things like giraffes. Um, and sheep and camels. So that's where she, basically where the whales began, and we know that because of genetic, uh, genetic studies. And for a long, long time, paleontologists were desperate to find um, fossils that could show us what the earliest whales looked like. And it was only really quite recently that these were found. So for a long time, we just had no idea what the earliest whale actually looked like. What was the species? What were the ancestors that, um, that basically took to the ocean? And then in 1980, a fantastic discovery was made in, in India, in Pakistan. Um, 
uh, immune to incontinent subcontinents, uh, and it was this guy. This is the earliest whale. This is actually an ancient whale. It doesn't look much like a whale. Um, it's a chap called Pachycetus, named after Pakistan, where it was found, and it's about 15, 50 million years old. Now, um, yep, doesn't look an awful lot like a whale. We do now think that this chap probably lived at the edges of the water. It probably um, jumped in and paddled around a bit and did doggy paddle, most likely. Um, so it wasn't fully aquatic, but it was certainly, we think, the earliest um, ancestor. Well, it represented what the ancestor of whales looked like, um, this, this creature. And we know that because it had one of these in its skull. And there's a rather nice story about how that was discovered. So the people who found this fossil in, uh, in Pakistan actually only found a skull. That was the first discovery that they found of this thing. Um, and someone dropped it, um, and it broke, which was obviously, that was a bad day. But, um, but in fact, it was quite uh, fortunate because inside they found one of these. Um, and that told them that this was a whale because it's only whales that have um, particular bones like these in our heads. Now, we do have a bulla in our, in our um, skulls. It's actually fixed into our skulls. It helps to protect um, the eardrum. But in whales, they have this thickening. Now, mine's a bit broken, so um, you can't see it so much. But we did see that it's got this sort of edge to it. Um, this is another living whale um, bulla. And it's got this thing called the involucrum, which is this kind of turning over. It's this big thickening at the edge of this bone. And what we know now in modern whales, that this is very important for hearing those sounds that come vibrating through their skulls, these the conductive sounds that come through bones. And we think that um, that shape helps to amplify the sound and sort of funnel it in towards the middle ear. So back to our Pachycetus. Now, we know that this chap um, had ears like we do. It had normal land-dwelling ears. Um, so when it jumped in the water, it probably didn't hear very well. It was like us. It would have had sort of ears full of water, wasn't hearing too much. But because it had this bone, it was beginning to hear those conductive sounds through its skull a little bit better. So it's starting to get to a point where it can hear slightly better in the water. Now, if we wind forward to the next set of uh, fossils that were found and the next species uh, or group of species that we found that were the sort of next step in the evolution of whale is this chap, Amulocetus. It lived about 49 million years ago. It looked a bit like a strange-looking cross between an otter and a crocodile, perhaps. Um, it's got this long snout. It's got eyes on the top of its head, webbed paws. Um, these ones still only lived in India, so they're quite restricted at this point. Um, and it had an important new step in its ears. It's got, still got land, normal land ears like we do. It has the bulla inside, but it has one more thing which is really important. And that is at the edge of its jawbone, at the end of its jawbone, it has a hole that we think was filled with oil or with fat. And this helps in modern whales, we see this, and it helps to conduct these sounds through the jaw and into the inner ear. So it's like a sort of hole that had fat at the base of its jaw, and this was really important for helping them to hear a bit better. So the ambulocetids um, could hear pretty good. They're getting there. They're, they're certainly doing a bit better than uh, the pachycetids were. We've got a couple of other groups of ancient whale ancestors that came along. The Remingtonocetids lived a bit later. Um, and then these guys are very important, the Protocetids, um, lived 48 to 35 million years ago. And you can start to see there's lots of different species of these guys, and they are starting to look a bit more like proper whales now. Um, their back legs are starting to get smaller, especially that species on the right-hand side, this chap here. And we think we've got a good idea that they started having flukes on the ends of their bodies, at the end of their vertebrae at that point, so they could swim nicely. And these were the first whales that moved out of India. They are now living in oceans all around the world. Um, and they're doing pretty well. So this is, we're getting close to the rewards, 
particularly nice whale at that point. And finally, we reached these amazing creatures, the basilosaurids that lived 40 to 35 million years ago. Now, these guys um, do look kind of like sea serpents. Some of them are very, very long, thin bodies. When they were first discovered, people really didn't know what they were, and they can be up to 18 meters long. Um, but they are whales, and we can see they have these lovely bones in their ears, which tell us that they had this, this uh, ability to hear more of the sounds coming through the bones. But they had one more important uh, development in the hearing of whales. Now, I've said how when we jump in the water, we have all the sound echoing around our heads, coming through our skulls, and it's hard to figure out where sound is coming from. And that's quite important. If you need to know if a sound is over here or if it's over that way, um, especially with um, the evolution, which we have a bit later on in whales, of echolocation, they really need to be able to figure out um, where things are coming from. And the way they do this is by putting air back inside their ears. So modern whales and the basilosaurids had this. They have basically put air sacs around each of their ears on each side of their heads. On their right-hand side, it insulates around this way so that the air basically stops the sound coming through, and it will only come to them from the right-hand side. And then on the left-hand side, they have lovely pockets of air that insulate the rest of their ear from all of the other sounds except for the ones that are coming in from the left. So they've now got this lovely directional hearing, and it's as basically giving them fantastic ability to hear things underwater. And that's the final stage we see in the basilosaurids. So we've got this lovely progression from basically a sort of strange-looking um, ancestor of the, uh, of the hippo jumping in the water and not really being able to hear very well through all of these different groups up to the point where whales and the ancestors of whales are hearing really pretty well in the water. Like I said, that there's about 27 million years ago is when um, whales started echolocating. So like bats, they send very high-pitched sounds out into the water. Um, well, bats do it in the air. Um, and then listen for the echoes coming back. And that's how a lot of the toothed whales um, hunt and see their way through the water. And, um, and songs are also very important for whales. So being able to make those sounds and to be able to hear them underwater is really important. Although we really don't know why. We still don't quite know why. But um, so sound is really important for whales. And the whale ear bones tells us a lovely story of how that all happened. Now, as well as being brilliantly adapted to life in the water, there's something else that whales are quite famous for. And that is the idea that they're very clever. They're very smart and intelligent. Now, I want to introduce this by just a nice little short reading from the beginning of one of my favorite books. It's an important and popular fact that things are not always what they seem. For instance, on the planet Earth, man had always assumed that he was the most intelligent species occupying the planet, instead of the third most intelligent. The second most intelligent creatures were, of course, dolphins, who, curiously enough, had long known of the impending destruction of the planet Earth. They had made many attempts to alert mankind to the danger, but most of their communications were misinterpreted as amusing attempts to punch footballs or whistle for tidbits. So they eventually decided they would leave Earth by their own means. The last ever dolphin message was misinterpreted as a surprisingly sophisticated attempt to do a double backward somersault through a hoop while whistling the star-spangled banner. But in fact, the message was this. So long, and thanks for all the fish. So that's an extract from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, read by the wonderful Stephen Fry. And um, uh, 
but my question is, well, how right, uh, how, how close to the truth was Douglas with that, about dolphins being the second most intelligent creatures after, I think, white, my, white mice were the most intelligent, it's according to him, but you have to read the book to find out more. Um, so, yeah, how intelligent are the cetaceans? How clever are they? Now, there's, there's a couple of different ways that we can look at this. Um, the first of all, and one of the big reasons we think that cetaceans are particularly clever compared to lots of other animals, is their brains. So we can look at what's going on inside their heads. Now, um, first of all, they do have pretty big brains. Um, I think any of you were in, were you in um, any of you in Matt's talk this morning about brains? Great, so you already know tons more about brains than I do, which is fantastic. So he told you that human brains are very complicated, wonderful things, and they weigh just a bit under a kilo and a half. Um, dolphins, bottlenose dolphins have a slightly bigger brain than us, eh, 1.6 kilos. Sperm whales, though, they have the biggest brains on the planet. They are the biggest brainiest, well, they have the biggest brains. Uh, 7.8 kilos is the size of a, uh, a sperm whale brain. It's absolutely massive. But of course, sperm whales themselves are very big, so we, have to, we really should take body size into account when we're looking at just the physical size of a brain. A bigger body does need more kind of uh, more brain power to, to, to power it, really. So what we can do is take, uh, take body size into account and come up with a ratio of body size to brain size. And when we do that, the cleverest, if we like, if we're taking that approach, the, the biggest brained creatures on the planet are these guys. Uh, <laughs> tree trees. Um, it's a bit of an anomaly, I think, that they happen to be just, so they are quite little creatures, they really are quite small, um, and their brains are still quite small. Um, so they do have the largest brain to body size. But second come us, well done everybody, we do have the second uh, biggest brains compared to our body size, although I guess that depends how big you are, but anyway, let's move on from that. Um, and after us, it is the dolphins and the porpoises do have uh, the third biggest brains compared to their body size in general. So this already gives us an idea that you know, they are pretty well endowed, endowed in the brain department. Um, but if we look inside uh, the brains of uh, cetaceans, we also see something else that's quite interesting. Um, if we look inside our own brains, we get um, to see something called spindle cells. I actually don't really know which bit of this picture is the spindle cell, um, but it's in there somewhere. But they're very important. Um, they're very important in our brains. And for a long time, it was thought that it was only humans and a few primates that have these cells. Um, that basically help to wire up our brains, they help to um, pass signals and process signals um, involved in quite high-powered brain activity, things like processing emotions, helping us to interact socially, um, and sort of it seems to be that we get these cells in parts of our brains that are involved in things like empathy and, um, and speech. So, um, so very important cells in our brains. Um, it's thought, um, as I said, it was thought they were only occurring in, in primates, but we have found them in cetaceans. There are spindle cells inside the brains of orca, beluga whales, bottlenose whales, um, and our old friend, the fin whale. So when our wonderful Cambridge whale was alive, he would have had an enormous brain filled with these cells, which could have been doing something really interesting. We don't really know at the moment. This is quite a recent discovery. But it seems to indicate that animals with very big brains need these cells to help communicate across those large brains for rapid communication. But there is a chance that it's involved in the sort of circuitry that's needed for very complex social interactions. So it is possible that the brains of cetaceans are big and then maybe they're wired up in such a way that, like us, it allows us to do very complicated and interesting things in our lives. So that's 
certainly gives us a bit of a hint that something is going on with cetaceans. But now I want to hand you over for a few minutes to a, a dolphin expert, Laurie Marino, who um, is uh, going to has made a beautiful animation about um, the intelligence of dolphins. So I'm going to hand you over to Laurie. In 1985, three researchers on a dolphin studying expedition got a little bored. To lighten things up, one pretended to be Poseidon by placing a seaweed garland on his head and then throwing it into the ocean. Moments later, a dolphin surfaced with the seaweed crowning her head. Sure, this could have been a coincidence, but it's also entirely possible that the dolphin was mimicking the scientist. That's because dolphins are one of the smartest animal species on Earth. So exactly how smart are they? Like whales and porpoises, dolphins belong to the group of aquatic mammals known as cetaceans, who comprise 86 different species and share a common link with ungulates, or hoofed animals. Originally land mammals, the first cetaceans entered the water about 55 million years ago as large predators with sharp teeth. Then, a shift in ocean temperatures about 35 million years ago reduced the availability of prey. One group of cetaceans who survived this disruption, the odontocetes, wound up smaller with less sharp teeth but also larger and more complex brains that allowed for complex social relationships, as well as echolocation to navigate and communicate. Jump ahead to the present, and modern dolphins' brains are so large that their encephalization quotient, their brain size compared to the average for their body size, is second only to humans. Dolphins have evolved to survive through their ability to form complex social networks that hunt, ward off rivals, and raise offspring together. For example, one group of Florida dolphins practices a sophisticated form of cooperation to hunt fish. A dolphin designated as the net maker kicks up mud, while another gives the signal for the other dolphins to simultaneously line up and catch the escaping fish. Achieving a goal like this requires deliberate planning and cooperation, which in turn requires some form of intentional communication. Dolphins pass down their communication methods and other skills from generation to generation. Different dolphin populations exhibit variations in greetings, hunting strategies, and other behaviors. This sort of cultural transmission even extends to tool use. One group of bottlenose dolphins off the Australian coast, nicknamed the Dolphin Sponge Club, has learned how to cover their rostrums with sponges when rooting in sharp corals, passing the knowledge from mother to daughter. Dolphins have even demonstrated language comprehension. When taught a language based on whistles and hand gestures, they not only understood what the signals meant, but that their order had meaning, the difference between bringing the ball to the hoop and bringing the hoop to the ball so they were able to process two of the main elements of human language, symbols that stand for objects and actions, and syntax that governs how they are structured. Dolphins are also one of the few species who pass the mirror test. By recognizing themselves in mirrors, they indicate physical self-awareness, and research shows they can recognize not just their bodies, but also their own thoughts, a property called metacognition. In one study, dolphins comparing two sounds could indicate a same 
different or uncertain response. Just like humans, they indicated uncertainty more often with difficult trials, suggesting they're aware of what they know and how confident they feel about that knowledge. But some of the most amazing things about dolphins are their senses of empathy, altruism, and attachment. The habit of helping injured individuals extends across the species barrier, as evidenced by the many accounts of dolphins carrying humans to the surface to breathe. And like us, dolphins mourn their dead. When we consider all the evidence, we may wonder why humans still hunt dolphins for meat, endanger them through fishing and pollution, or imprison them to perform tricks. The ultimate question may not be whether dolphins are intelligent and complex beings, but whether humans can empathize with them enough to keep them safe and free. There you go. That's um, lovely animation. Laurie um, Marino, who led that uh, TED lesson, um, was actually the scientist who did those mirror tests with dolphins. Um, and the way they do that, they do it with other um, primates. Well, they do it with primates. They've done it with elephants um, by putting a mark on their animal's head and then putting a mirror in front of them. Um, and it's actually fine when you've got an animal that's got limbs like arms or a trunk, because then what they do is go, oh, you're wrong, that's me in the mirror. And they realize that that's a reflection of themselves and that this is um, something that's changed. It's a bit difficult with dolphins because they obviously don't have um, arms anymore, but they do seem to behave in such a way that we might think they're going, oh, what's going on and checking themselves out. Um, so that's very interesting. So there's lots of ideas about why um, we think cetaceans and dolphins do have smarts uh, beyond possibly other animals. Loads of other fantastic studies are going on at the moment in lots of different cetacean species, trying to understand more about their complex behaviors, the social lives that they lead. Um, one in particular um, is uh, about humpback whales and their songs. Um, this was a, a wonderful study from a couple of years ago looking at the different songs that humpback males sing in the Pacific Ocean. Um, now, in a, within a single population, all the males tend to sing the same songs, but they change slowly over time. New songs come along, um, and uh, the, the trends kind of change. And one study showed that a new song that appeared among um, whales initially um, on the east coast of Australia um, were passed on uh, two, uh, about 5,000 miles away. It took two years for this to move, but basically populations gradually across towards Tahiti started singing the same song. It was like it was catching on. This was the, t the, hit, the hit tune that all the whales wanted to be singing, and it slowly spread across an enormous part of the ocean. So whales can learn from each other. And again, we don't really know why they sing these songs or why they change or why they learn from each other, but something kind of cool is definitely going on, and there's still tons of wonderful things we're discovering um, about the whales. Now, I finally want to move on to a slightly sadder side to whales, which is the relationship between whales um, and humans and how that's changed over time. Um, and in fact, the songs of whales have played a really important part in changing our attitudes towards uh, whales. Because these days, most of us think of them as probably being just wonderful creatures. They're great wildlife that should be protected. Um, but that definitely hasn't always been the case. If we wind back to medieval times, whales were just one of those terrifying, man-eating beasts that inhabit the deep oceans, um, definitely something to stay away from. Then gradually people realized that actually whales were quite useful and there was lots of stuff in a whale that we could use. We could eat the meat, we can use the blubber from their skin to boil down and make oil. And for hundreds of years, in fact, most of the lamps and lights that we had in the human world um, was powered by whale oil. Uh, you may also know that people made underwear out of baleen plates, out of those bendy plates that you get in the baleen whale's mouths. Um, nice and flexible bits of um, thin strips which were used to make 
corsets for ladies, hourglass figures, who are basically made out of whale bones. So um, people have been hunting whales for hundreds of years. It's, um, the whaling industry became industrialized in the 20th century, so we had powered boats, powered harpoons. If you go to the, um, the Scott Polar Museum, just on Mansfield Road, you'll see, road, you'll see um, a powered harpoon outside on display. And that was the kind of thing that was being used to hunt whales for a very long time. Now, this did have an impact on whale numbers. So this is just one species, the blue whale, to show you what happened through commercial whaling. Each of these whales I'm showing you represents a 1,000 whales. And this is how many we think there used to be. The, sort of the, the number has been recreated. It's obviously an estimate because no one actually counted how many whales there were back then. But generally an idea of before commercial whaling really got going, it's thought there were maybe somewhere around 250,000 blue whales living in the oceans. Now, this did not go well for blue whales and for lots of other big whale species when they were being hunted. And they reached a real low point in the 1970s when it was thought that there were 360 blue whales left, um, which is absolutely extraordinary. So, but the good news is that um, there, was, there were some people, some very brave and silly people who came along and did things like this um, to change people's minds. Um, I'm sure not many of you in the audience are old enough to remember the Save the Whale campaigns in the 70s and 80s. But lots of um, people from Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth, organizations like this, were desperately trying to change people's minds about whales. Because even back then in the 70s, it was generally accepted that it was fine to catch whales. People weren't that upset about it. We actually were starting to use their fat for things like margarine and for the glue on the back of stamps. Um, that's, that's how we got to the point of just the whales were just things to be used. But these guys got together and really tried to push a change in people's minds about whales. And it was an incredibly successful campaign for a couple of reasons, I think. Firstly, they went out and did things like this. They got into the face of these commercial whalers and they brought back pictures of this gory, gr gruesome, grisly business of cat killing whales in the oceans and um, processing them on ships. And then another really important thing happened in the 1970s, and it was this chap, Roger Payne, um, also with his colleague, Scott McVeigh. And what they did was they recorded the sounds of, of humpbacks singing for the first time. I think we should have a little listen to some humpbacks singing. You can hear that. They recorded sounds like this. In and some of you may also be old enough to remember that this became very popular. And in fact, they sold records of whale song. It became kind of a cool thing to do, to sit at home and listen to the songs of whales, which sounds pretty silly. But um, it's generally thought that once we discovered just how complex and beautiful whale songs were, this really helped to change people's opinions of them. And it helped to push this tide of public opinion in favor of whales. These were no longer just big creatures that we should be slaughtering for, for use in all sorts of ways. These are intelligent, smart, sensitive, social creatures that sing songs to each other. Maybe we should protect them. So ultimately this did work and in 1986, we saw a moratorium introduced on um, commercial whaling. So still today, the great whales, so that's all of the baleen whales plus sperm whales, they are no longer allowed to be commercially hunted. Um, there is some still hunting that continues. There's some traditional hunting. About 350 whales a year are caught by traditional communities. And there are three countries in the world who object to this moratorium and are still trying to continue whaling. That's Norway, Iceland, and Japan. And together, they're catch catching about 1,000 whales a year. So that does continue to be somewhat of a pressure on whales. But compared to what it was, we're certainly in a much better position than we were 
Um, and actually now we think there's probably about 10,000 blue whales. So the population is recovering, which is really great news. There are other issues that whales face today. Um, entangling and bycatch is one big issue. Now, this is when fishing nets are set not intentionally to catch whales, but they get tangled up and they can often drown. Um, it's thought that about 300,000 um, cetaceans a year um, die this way, including lots of smaller species. And one in particular lives only in one place in the world. It lives here in the Gulf of California in Mexico. And it's this guy, Yakuta. So cute. Now, I'm sorry, this is not going to be good for you, so just <laughs> belt up, this is, um, buckle in. This is not going to be a happy story. This is the most endangered cetacean that we have in the world today. Um, it's also the smallest species of cetacean. They're about a meter and a half long, so about this big. Um, the sad story is that since the Yangtze River dolphin was declared extinct in 2006, um, some scientists went to go and have a look for that species and didn't find any, so they were declared extinct, and these guys were kind of promoted in a bad way to, to being the most endangered species. And it's thought that there might be 30 of them left in the wild today, just 30. Um, and really, this is a very pressing issue. Um, this photograph was taken just a couple of days ago, on the 12th of March, um, by the Sea Shepherd Organization, who are trying really hard to get to grips with this. And the problem with the vaquitas is that they're being caught by illegal fishermen who are targeting another critically endangered species. This is the fish called the totoaba. They're targeted because in China, an organ inside these fish's body, called the swim bladder, um, is worth about $20,000 a kilo, and it's made into soup. Um, and people go out and illegally set these big drift net, um, gill nets, which are um, very fine nets that are put across the, uh, through the water to catch these fish. And the fakitas are also getting caught at the same time. Um, so right now, people are talking about whether we need to be doing things like captive breeding. It's quite controversial. Should we take these large, dirty animals, some of them into captivity and try and breed them? It might not work. It could make it even worse. This really kind of is a critical time, and most scientists agree who know about this that maybe the vaquita's got about two years to go before it also goes extinct. So some pretty sad news in the cetacean field today. Um, another issue for cetaceans, as well as entanglement, is ship strikes. They're getting hit by ships, um, especially ones that don't echolocate. They seem to be unaware that there are big ships nearby. So the North Atlantic right whales live on the north coast, um, the uh, east coast of North America. They swim between Florida and Cape Cod, and there are a lot of shipping. It's a big, big, busy shipping lane, and so the big issue for those guys is trying not to get hit by boats. And finally, we've got strandings. Now, you might have heard in last month there was a great big whale stranding that happened in New Zealand. About 650 pilot whales ended up on a beach in New Zealand, and sadly about half of them did die. People were fantastic. There were volunteers who came down to try and keep these animals alive while the tide was out. And a lot of them did escape, about 200, I think, at least got, um, got away and swam off and survived the whole thing. And now, we don't really understand how, why um, cetaceans strand. There's probably lots of different reasons. Pilot whales, in particular, are very prone, and we think that might be something to do with their social lives. They're very social creatures. They live in these pods um, that are very tightly knit. So if one individual is sick or um, uh, gets into trouble or has a disease or something um, and ends up um, getting too close to shore, then all the others come and see what's going on. So they often all end up having trouble together. So that's one idea. It might be that because of their social bonds, they stick together. Um, it could be to do with noise pollution. That's something else we're looking into. The oceans are becoming more noisy. There's military sonar. Um, oil and gas exploration involves very high, loud sounds. And we've heard about how um, whales can hear so well underwater. 
So possibly that sort of thing is starting to confuse them um, and in some cases might end up them um, leading themselves up into the beaches and stranding where they don't do so well. But we don't really fully understand why whales strand um, and why that's happening. And we will probably never know why the whale, the Cambridge whale, the fin whale, did strand on that beach in Norman's Bay um, over 200, 150 years ago. There's a lovely picture by Quentin Blake of the, of the whale. Um, but um, but uh, we can look at the skeleton that was left behind and hopefully think more about and remember more about these wonderful creatures and the things that happened to them during their lives. And I just want to finish off by showing you a very short um, little quick um, animation that was put together by the wonderful Alice Turner. It was part of the Illuminate Cambridge um, Festival in February. And it shows the animation um, of our fin whale, what it would have looked like on the inside and also on the outside. And I'm going to play you a little bit more of the Ocean Song project. Now, is anyone in the audience, were you anyone involved in the Ocean Song project? Do we have a hand here? Excellent. So, so if you don't know, what this was, was a fantastic, um, it's a new sound installation that's been recorded by the wildlife um, sound recordist Chris Watson, with the help of lots of wonderful people in Cambridge and elsewhere, who came together to sing songs, to sing, to record sounds of nature, sound of whales, and they put together a wonderful um, sound installation which is going to be played um, with the whale in the museum when it's opened in the summer. So I'm going to play you just a little bit of that, and um, here's some animation and some questions about whales, so you can test yourself, see if you remember anything um, that I've told you today. <coughs> those answers to those questions so thank you very much for listening now um, I urge you to come back and visit the museum when it's reopened so you can see the wonderful finback whale in pride of place in the entrance hall um, the museum are still looking for donations to support um, the refurbishment of the of the wonderful things that are going on so if you want a chance to win uh, tickets for the grand opening with David Attenborough in August then do check out their website um, museum.zoo.cam.ac.uk and thank you very much
gives me very great pleasure to welcome Steve Mould, who may be known to many of you as one third of um, the Festival of Spoken Nerds, who have put in several recent appearances on QI, which has had several mentions this morning. Um, he is obviously well known as a science presenter in many, many different formats from YouTube, TV, and stage. Um, and I'm reliably informed he's going to blow things up and set fire to things mm -hmm. and stuff. So do please welcome Steve Mould. Thank you very much. Ah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming to my talk. And uh, two years ago, I did a talk called Poking the Brain because I'm really interested in how brains work. I've got a slightly unusual brain. I'm dyslexic. Is anyone else dyslexic? Yeah, so we've got some other weird brains in the audience as well. And so I've always been interested in how they work and always been interested in having a poke around. So I called the show two years ago Poking the Brain because I'm interested in how they work. And as you poke around in people's brains, you find out actually they're all weird. It's not just dyslexic brains and, and like that. It's all brains are quite weird. Um, so how do you poke around inside a brain? You could use a stick like that. That's not going to work, is it? I've got to go through my eyeball. You're right. I've got to go through my eyeball or my ear or something like that. Unfortunately, that really hurts. But there is another way to poke a brain through the eyes and through the ears without using a stick and without it hurting. And that is to use pictures and sounds. So you can use pictures and sounds to poke around inside someone's brain. Can I show you an example of what I mean? Okay, so here's an example of a picture, moving pictures, a video, right? This is a video that I'm gonna play you. And it's gonna have a poke around inside your brain. It's gonna tell us a little bit about the way brains work. Okay, so. I'm going to play this video, um, and it's a video of some celebrities. And there's a celebrity on the left, a celebrity on the right, and they're going to change. Okay? I want you to look at the celebrities just to make sure there's nothing strange about them. Okay? So look at the celebrities, make sure you recognize them, make sure there's nothing weird about them. Okay, here we go. Okay, nothing too strange. You recognize most of them? Yeah, well you recognize a lot of them, I guess. Okay, I'm gonna do this again. Okay, except this time, don't look at the celebrities, look at the cross in the middle, okay? Just look at the cross in the middle. It's the same film, but this time, look at the cross in the middle. Here we go. It's a bit weird, isn't it? <laughs> It's a bit weird. <laughs> These are people that you're very familiar with. There's no, I haven't changed the pictures at all. These are completely normal pictures of people you already know. Okay, I'll stop it there. <laughs> um, it's, it's funny, isn't it? It's weird. Uh, so. So what does this tell us about the brain? Well, it, it tells us. Well, so we already know, actually, there's a part of the brain which is specialized. It, the, the, there's a part of the brain whose job is to recognize faces. And it turns out that that part of the brain is only good at recognizing faces. It's only good at making sense of faces when you're looking right at them. If a face is over here, 
that bit of the brain doesn't work anymore. And you get these really weird results. You get this result of, actually, yeah, faces are really different. Your face is really different to your face. It's really different to your face. But we're so good at recognizing faces, we don't notice this crazy difference between all our faces. Um, so what do you call that? Like, if I show you some, a weird image and it seems weird, what do you call it? Any ideas? Nick, shout out. Optical illusion, yeah, weird, yeah, exactly, yeah. It's an optical illusion. It turns out you can poke around inside people's brains using uh, optical illusions, but you can also poke around inside people's brains through their ears, and that's called audio illusion. In fact, there's illusions for all your different senses. Uh, and so uh, a couple of years ago at the Cambridge Science Festival, uh, I brought along some of these illusions to have a poke around inside the brain, so I thought I'd come back with some new ones. So this is kind of a, a mishmash of uh, different illusions that, that can uh, poke around inside your brain and, uh, and, and we can learn how it works uh, through that. So we've got some new illusions uh, and maybe some old favorites as well. Uh, the first one I want to show you um, is, it's gonna go, uh, okay. The first one um, is, uh, uh, this is an audio illusion that I want to uh, not show you but, but play for you. So I'm gonna play two sounds, two notes, and you have to say, whether the second sound is higher or lower than the first sound, okay? So we're gonna have a practice go. Here we go, is everyone ready? Okay, hope it's not too loud. Let's see how it comes out. Um, that was too loud. Uh, <laughs> let me turn that down. Let's, uh, I think I might have skipped one, hold on, here we go. Okay, so if you think the second sound was higher than the first sound, Put your hand up with your thumb up in the air, okay? If you think the second sound was lower, put your hand up in the air but with your thumb down. Okay, so if you think it's high, the second sound was higher, thumb up. If you think it was lower, thumb down. Okay, have a look around you. Pretty much everyone's in agreement, except you, sir, interesting, but, uh, <laughs> but that's fine. So everyone thinks the second sound was higher. Oh, no, you as well, interesting. Okay, so pretty much everyone is in agreement. The second sound was higher than the first sound. Let's try it again with another uh, pair of sounds. Put your hand straight up when you hear the two sounds, whether you think the second sound was high or lower. Thumbs up or thumbs down, here we go. Okay, let's see, up in the air. Okay, have a look around you. Everyone's in agreement, yeah? You always think the sound's lower, that's great. Uh, regardless, um, you always think the opposite, it seems. Uh, but basically, everyone is in agreement the second sound was lower. Okay, let's try this again. The final two sounds. Uh, uh, put your hand straight up, thumbs up if you think the second sound is higher, thumbs down if you think it's lower. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, have a look around now. Keep your, keep your, okay, that's really interesting. Now you're generally not in agreement. Some people are doing this, which I think means whatever. Uh, Interesting, interesting. Okay, so actually just put your hands up if you thought it, the second sound was lower. Keep your hands up. Yeah, quite a few. And every, everyone else, with, the, with a few exceptions who weren't sure uh, or have some more opinions, think that it's, it's different. So are you mad? Are you crazy? Like, because the people around you disagree. You, are you sure about it? You, you're, you're pretty sure. Because I, I, I hear the second sound as lower as well. So I'm in the, I'm in the lower camp. That's quite a few of you. 
But all the people around you seem to disagree. How can that be that some of you hear the sound going one way and some of you hear the sound going the other way? Well, this is an audio illusion. So it's a bit like an optical illusion. There's something tricky about it. There's something weird about the sound that I played you that meant I could split the room into two different groups of people like that. So what is it that's weird about this sound? To understand what was weird about that sound, to understand why some of you heard it go one way and some of you heard it go the other way, we need to understand what sound is. So I'm going to... Um, uh, actually, I might ask. Does anyone, does anyone have an idea what sound is? Good example, though, from the back, wherever that was. Great example. <laughs> does anyone know what crying is? No? Okay, no examples. Um, okay, so, uh, yeah. So what is, what is sound? Anyone want to give me? Yeah? Vibrations, yeah? And did you have an idea? That's brilliant. It's the air moving. It's vibrations. It, that's exactly right. So, uh, like, okay, so imagine this. Imagine I move my hand forwards like that, right? What's going to happen to the air in front of my hand? It's going to move forward as well, isn't it? Yeah. And the air in front of that air is going to move forward as well because it's pushed by the air behind it. And that bit of air is going to move forward as well. So you, look, if I go like that, did you feel it? <laughs> wow. You're really sensitive. That's amazing. Because <laughs> most people shouldn't be able to feel that, right? But... There is an organ in your body that can feel the movement of air. And it's inside your ears. It's your eardrum. But your ears can only sense the movement of air if it happens again and again and again, repeatedly. Right? So, like, if I move my hand really quickly backwards and forwards... <laughs> don't lie to me. Um, the thing is, okay, I can't move my hand fast enough for your ears to be able to detect that backwards and forwards motion. Let me show you what I mean. So I've got this speaker here, right? Uh, let's uh, start that off. So can you see the speaker? Oh, we're going to zoom in. Where's the camera? Oh, it's up there. <laughs> Look at that. There we go. So you can see the speaker moving in and out. Can you see that? But you can't hear it. So let's just uh, make it go a bit faster. Okay. So you can see it's still moving in and out. But you still can't hear it. We go faster and faster until. Anyone hear it yet? It's quite low, isn't it? Go faster. Yeah, can you hear that? Yeah. Isn't that cool? So, the faster that backwards and move, backwards and forwards movement goes, uh, the higher the note. But you have to get it to a certain speed before you can even hear it at all. It's called the frequency. You have to get it going backwards and forwards fast enough. You need a high enough frequency, and then we can start to hear it as a low note. And the faster it gets, the higher it gets. Okay, so we understand sound. But to understand this illusion, this uh, audio illusion, we also need to understand something called resonance. Has anyone heard of resonance? Okay, cool. Some of you have heard of resonance. So things resonate. Like, for example, this wine glass here. If you ping a wine glass... It makes a noise. That's the wine glass resonating. Or if you pluck a guitar string. It's not really a guitar, is it? You know what I mean. So it's a ukulele. Do you play the ukulele? Who plays the ukulele? I don't. <laughs> but I own one for this talk. Uh, so look, when you pluck a string, 
it resonates and it makes... Uh, does anyone uh, play a wind instrument like a recorder or a flute or a clarinet or something like that? Yeah. Okay. So when you do that, when you play a note on your wind instrument, that's the air inside resonating. So I want to show you, I want to demonstrate air resonating. So I've got a, a tube here. This tube is hollow. There's nothing inside it. There's just air inside. And at one end here, I've got a speaker. So just like this speaker here, I can make the, the speaker go in and out like that. And so I can move the air backwards and forwards inside this tube. Okay, so I want to see what happens when I send uh, basically pulses of pressure through this tube. I want to see what happens. And actually, we're going to try and uh, demonstrate this with the audience. So uh, it, it's basically like a Mexican wave. Okay, so we're going to do a Mexican wave. We'll start off on this side of the audience, okay, and then we'll travel over to this side. Right, so we'll do it on the count of three. Is everyone ready? Yes, you're putting your coat down. Fantastic. You mean business. I like that. <laughs> Okay. All right. On the count of three. Three, two, one, go. Uh, yes. Brilliant. Okay. Now, be really careful when you sit back down because the seats uh, are safe. Um, okay. So that was, uh, that was good. But here's the thing. If I use my speaker here to send a pulse into the tube, it's going to travel along this tube and some of it's going to get reflected. It's going to bounce off here, and it's going to travel back. Not all of it. It's going to be slightly smaller when it comes back. And then when it gets to here, some of it's going to bounce back this way, a little bit smaller this time, and then it's going to bounce off here a little bit smaller. So the pulse is going to bounce backwards and forwards like this, but it's going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Okay? Should we try that? Okay, starting from this side. Three, two, one, go. Yes, yes, very good. And it's going to bounce back. Oh, look at that, but slightly smaller. Oh, yeah. Then it's going to bounce again, but slightly smaller. Oh, look, and there's hardly anything left now. Oh, maybe one more bounce. Let's do one more bounce, but it's a lot smaller now. And it's fading away. Yeah. Still a lot of energy over here, though. <laughs> Fantastic looking. It's now it's completely faded away. Amazing. Hey, so that's exactly what happens here. But imagine, uh, suppose I do this, right? Suppose I send one wave in like this. But then when the wave is sort of here, uh, when, when the wave gets to here, I send another one in. So I've got two traveling in opposite directions like this. Should we try that? <laughs> okay, so we're going to start from there and from there at the same time. Okay, here we go. Let's, uh, let's get this ready. Uh, okay, so we'll do it uh, on the count of three from both sides. One, two, three, go. Yes, very good, very good, very good. Yes, very nice. Okay. Some people remembering the reflection as well. I, uh, let's, let's not do reflections this time because it's a bit complicated, isn't it? Now, people in the middle, which is about here, I like what you did. That was really good. But what I really wanted to see was the two waves adding together. Watch this. Look, when they come together, twice as big in the middle. <laughs> That's what I want to see in the middle, okay? All right, so on the count of three, one, two, three, go. Yeah, coming along, coming along. Ah! Oh! Yes, so good. Fantastic, you did it. All right. That was brilliant. Okay, so what's this got to do with resonance? Okay, well, let me explain. I'll show you, I'll show you what happens with resonance. So, 
Imagine this. Imagine I send a pulse of pressure into the tube. It travels to here. It bounces. It comes back. It's a little bit weaker this time. It comes back here. But when the pulse gets back to this end, just at the right moment, I send another pulse from my speaker. So now the pulse that's in there is even bigger because it was that first pulse plus the second pulse. It's even bigger now. Comes to here, gets to here, and just as it reaches here again, I send a third pulse. So I'm adding to the pulse that's already in there. So now the pulse is even bigger again. And if I do that every single time, every single time the pulse gets back here, I, 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 send, I, I get my speaker to add another pulse. That pulse is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that is resonance. Resonance is when you get the timing just right so that every pulse you put in adds to the pulse that's already in there. But you have to get the timing right. You have to wait for the pulse to get back. Or you can send two pulses in. So one pulse and another pulse. They cross over here like we saw. They cross over. And then the third pulse happens when the first pulse is back. So you've got these bits, or you could have three pulses. You go one, two, another one comes out, right? The fourth pulse doesn't happen until the, the first one's back in, so you've got them, them crossing over in all different places. Right, do you want to see what that looks like? Okay. So to show you what that looks like, I have to set it on fire. So <laughs> I did promise I would set something on fire. So um, let me plug, uh, so I've got to uh, take these out uh, of here. Where's that? So I'm going to power up my this, I'm going to power up the speaker uh, on the end of here. That goes in there. So I've got butane gas. The first thing I have to do is fill the tube with butane. Um, basically, well, basically, I have to get past 15% uh, butane because um, that's explosive. So um, let me just make sure, make sure we're nice and full. Um, oops, I can smell percentages. Um, it's not the best superpower, but you know. Um, okay. All right. Should we set fire to it? Let's see. And maybe we could have the lights down as well, wouldn't you think? I don't know if it's possible to have the lights down. It is possible. Awesome. Okay. So should we send uh, should we send some sound in there now? Remember, so so how how fast do I have to have my uh, speaker pulsing? Well, it has to go backwards and forwards so quickly that it's actually it's an audible sound. It's a sound that you can that you can actually hear. So okay, too loud. Um, <laughs> let me drop that down. Oh, how can I do that? Whoops. See how I can tell. Oh, I know what to do. Why are you so loud? Oh, I know. <laughs> Where's my thing? Oh, there it is. You guys are very patient. Thank you. Okay. So I have to get the frequency just right. So let me just see if I can. Ooh. Can you see the waves? Okay, so that 
is where you've got pulses coming from both directions. They sort of cancel out here, they cancel out here, and they cancel out here. Now, that is one of the resonating frequencies of this tube. Did you go and find another one? Okay, so we're going to go a bit higher. Should I try and get even more bumps? Oh yeah, was that a round of applause when he started? Oh, hey, you guys. That was, uh, that was so unprompted of you. I, uh, let's see if I can get another one. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Okay, now. Um, so yeah, that's called a Rubens tube. Let's hear it for the Rubens tube. Um, so, it turns out a lot of things resonate. So, things like your, uh, your recorder, your clarinet, or your flute, things like the columnar bear inside here, things like the glass, um, things like my tiny little guitar, some people call it a ukulele. Um, I want to show you an, my favorite example of something that resonates, uh, which is this. Has anyone seen one of these before? This is called a Chinese spouting bowl. And um, when you rub the handles of the bowl, the, the bowl uh, resonates, so it vibrates, just like the, the glass vibrates when you ping it like that, just like a string vibrates when you pluck it. But because I've got water inside the bowl, the water's gonna uh, vibrate as well. see the water spouting out. It's cool, isn't it? There you go, the Chinese spouting bowl. <laughs> um, here's, uh, I, I want to show you one more example, actually. See if we, I, I want to see if we can uh, make uh, some resonating patterns using this tube here. So this is like uh, a giant guitar string or a giant ukulele string. I need someone to help me do this one. Uh, actually, who's, so yeah, you. Uh, you. Uh, round of applause to my volunteers as he comes to the stage. Okay, so you take that end there, I'm just gonna hold it. So what we're gonna try and do is gonna try and create the different, what we call resonating frequencies, okay? So we're gonna try, this is like a, a low note. So I'm gonna do a low note, you ready? It's just a, like a skipping rope, there you go. <laughs> so if you hold it really still, I'll get it started, okay? You ready? Okay, here we go. There you go. Nice and easy. No one's impressed. That's because we haven't got to the good bit yet. Okay, gonna go even faster this time. We're gonna see if we can create, you remember when I had the flame tube, there were the bits that, uh, where there weren't any flames. Right, they're called nodes. I'm gonna see if I can make a node in the middle of this rubber tube, are you ready? You just hold nice and tight. Okay, here we go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's see if I can get two nodes. Yeah, go on. Okay, hold nice and still. Yeah, oh, straight in. 
I've never done it first time. Okay. Now, I'm going to go for four. Sometimes I get five by mistake. <laughs> okay, here we go. You ready? How many is that? Ah, round of applause for my volunteer as well. Thank you. Now, here's the interesting thing. So, all of those different patterns, they're like different notes. So the, the big one that was like that, that's like a low note. Uh, the next one up, that's like a slightly higher note, the one that went like that. That's like, uh, right? The one that's like that, that's like, uh, right? Okay. The thing is, when you hit something, or pluck something, or blow over something, or even when you talk or sing, even your vocal cords. Yeah, right. Now, you, okay. Ah, <laughs> some people have heard of singing. Okay, that's pretty, that's lovely. Oh. Um, when you, when you sing, you don't, it, it sounds like one note, okay? So if I put this, right? It's not a great example, but <laughs> right, it sounds like a single note, but it isn't. When you pluck something or strike something, you actually get all those different patterns mixed together. So you get the big one, you get this one as well on top, you get this one on top, you get all of them together. And it turns out that, um, that because things, uh, lots of things in nature resonate like this, like human voices and when you hit things, our brains have evolved to understand that kind of sound. So, when you listen to a guitar string being plucked, although it's making all of those different sounds at the same time, you only hear one of them. You hear the lowest one. And all the ones above it just add to the, the kind of the, the, uh, the quality of the sound. I'm going to show you what I mean with a graph. And I apologize for doing a graph, but this is really helpful. So when you listen to a guitar string being plucked or a musical instrument being played, what you hear is the lowest frequency. But what's actually happening is we're getting all these other frequencies on top like this. So if I play a lower note, that's what it looks like. So uh, this is a high note. This is a low note. You see that is higher than that one. And this is a bit like the two sounds that I played you that split the room into people who thought it went higher and people who thought it went lower. So look, this is like the, the first note and this is like the second note, except the two notes that I played you were an audio illusion. So there was something tricky about them, something weird and unnatural. And the weird thing about the two notes that I played you is in the second one, I took away the lowest Here's the weird thing, okay. So if you heard the second sound as being higher than the first sound, that's most of you, what you heard is what was really happening. You heard the sound go from there up to there. But the people that heard the sound go from high to low, that includes me, what you heard, you heard a sound that wasn't even which means that your brains are amazing. <laughs> because your brains have error correction. 
your brain's filled in the gap and added that final frequency back in. So that's called the illusion of the missing fundamental. Isn't that amazing that our brains, you know, you sort of think when, when you listen to sounds, like you're, you just, it, you hear the notes and that's it. But in fact, our brains are doing something a lot more complicated than that. They're looking at the pattern of frequencies and attempting uh, to understand it. Uh, sticking with uh, audio illusions for a second, um, I'm going to play uh, some speech. It's uh, a couple of sentences of speech. This is by uh, Diana Deutsch, uh, an amazing psychologist, uh, and she's going to say a couple of uh, sentences. And then I'm just going to repeat a few of the words again and again and again, okay? To the point where it's, it gets a bit weird. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to play a few words repeatedly. Here we go. seems quiet or non-existent. Oh, no, wait, this is... Hmm. Oh, I turned the volume down, didn't I? Here we go. The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. But they sometimes behave so strangely they sometimes behave so strangely, 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 sometimes behave so strangely. Start to sound a little bit like singing. That's weird, isn't it? This is called the speech to song illusion. I, wh what I love about this is um, no one really knows why. <laughs> isn't that great? So, uh, sorry, no explanation. Uh, but the best bit is now that you've heard that so many times, that's permanently in your brain. So, <laughs> I'm going to play the whole sentence again and just listen out for that one bit. The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. Isn't that weird? <laughs> it's so good. Um. So... Uh, yeah, sorry there's no explanation. You know, music, uh, music is a really interesting thing. There's a lot of research going on about music because we don't really know why it's such a big deal. Um, but it does seem that maybe there are parts of the brain, you know, that, that are dedicated to music, but we still don't understand it. Um, this is something I want to try. I've never tried this with an audience, okay? So I really want to give this a try. Um, I'm going to show you uh, what's called uh, static or white noise. Um, if, you're <laughs> if you're old enough to remember pre digital TV, uh, tuning out, uh, if you tune out a station, you see on your TV screen, uh, oh, oops, uh, not that, not that. That's the wrong slide. Uh, you see something like this. Yeah? Has anyone seen something like that before? Okay, great. So it's just, it's just a mess of, uh, stat it's, it's called static, it's black and white dots moving around. Okay, now, uh, I'm gonna show you that again, but I'm going to tell you something first. Uh, it seems like a random pattern of dots, but hidden within those dots, some of them are 
slowly moving up. Okay? Let me just try and see if you can see those dots. Okay? You see them? Can you see them moving up and down? Can you see them spinning round and round? <laughs> who, who can see that? If you can't see it, keep looking. See if you can see the dots moving around. Maybe they're moving left to right sometimes. I've kind of made it a bit random, so it goes up and down, side to side, because I wanted to see different things. Can you all see that? Okay. I'm going to let you into a secret. There were no moving dots. There were no moving dots. That was entirely in your head. So all the movement that you experienced was made up in here. And this is one of the most wonderful things, and actually slightly scary thing, uh, about the way our brains work. Our senses aren't as good as we think they are. Our sense of hearing isn't as good as we think it is. Our sense of sight isn't as good as we think it is. In fact, what's really happening is our brains are taking the really kind of rubbish, limited information that we get from our eyes and our ears and our other senses and trying to put together a picture of the world that makes sense. And often, your brain makes up stuff that isn't actually happening, <laughs> which is incredible, like, like, with, um, like with these dots. You will see things happening that aren't actually happening, and that is your brain making stuff up. Normally, it's very effective. Normally, it's a way of figuring out what's happening in the world based on limited information, but often it causes you to see stuff that isn't even there. Um, uh, so we've done uh, sight and uh, we've done uh, hearing, but I want to see if we can look at some other senses as well. Um, I wanna, uh, uh, I'm going to need a, a volunteer for this, actually. Again, this is one I've never tried <laughs> um, with anyone, so you're my, you're my guinea pig, which is amazing. Um, I'm going to go uh, with you. A round of applause for my volunteer as she comes up on stage. Okay, so, um, yeah, okay. So if you come over here and uh, roll up your sleeves for me. Okay, cool. Okay, so uh, I've got some uh, beakers of water here. And you're going to put your hands in this one and this one. Okay, you do that for me. Okay, can you tell me something about the temperature of these? So left hands in hot water, cold, sorry, left hands in hot water, right hands in cold water. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, fantastic. Now, in a minute, I want you to tell me the temperature of the water in the middle by putting your hands in. And we'll do it on the count of 10, because I just want your hands to get used to where they are at the moment. Okay, so uh, we'll count down from 10, 9, 8, 7, oh, it's open, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, one. Keep them there for now. Okay, so now, <laughs> go, no, don't do it. Okay, so um, take your left hand out and put it in the middle one. Is that hot or cold? So, that, so the middle one's cold? Okay, take it out, put this one in there and tell me what it is. It's hot. That's weird, isn't it? Try and go the other way. Another one. What is it now? Okay, try the other one. That's weird, isn't it? Round of applause for my volunteer. Thank you very much. Um, 
Uh, okay, so, and, and this is another thing about our senses and about our brains. We're not very good at measuring things. We're not very good at saying what the temperature of something is. We're not very good at saying how bright the light is. We're not very good at saying how loud the sound is. All we're good at saying is, is this thing hotter or colder than this thing? Is this thing louder or quieter than this thing? We're not very good at saying how, or even how heavy is, you know, is this thing heavy, is this thing light? Couldn't tell you. What I can tell you is this thing's heavier than that thing, this thing's lighter than that thing. This is the perfect example. Your, your hand that's been in hot water, so this is, this is hot water, when you put it in lukewarm water, it feels cold because it is comparatively cold. When you have your hand in cold water, and then you put it in lukewarm water, it feels hot because it is comparatively hot. But isn't that amazing? Different parts of your body can be telling you different things um, about the world around you. Uh, I want to dig a bit deeper now because uh, so far we've been talking about uh, our senses and how our brains process the information coming from our senses. But you can poke the brain even deeper and start to look at um, how people uh, reason about the world, the, how they think logically. We can start to look at uh, the way our brains work in that way. And to do this, uh, I've got a puzzle. It's a puzzle involving uh, four playing cards. So uh, as you can see, we've got a card with a blue back. We've got a card with a red back. We've got a card with an eight and a card with a three on it. Now, I think there's a rule about these cards. I think these four cards obey a rule. And the rule is, if the card is blue on the back, it must have an even number on the other side. Okay, that's the rule. If it's blue on the back, it must have an even number on the other side. Now, I want to test and see whether these four cards obey that rule, because I want to be sure. But also, I'm really lazy. So I don't want to have to turn over any cards that I don't need to turn over. Okay? So, how many cards do I need to turn over? Who thinks I need to turn over all the cards? Who thinks I need to turn over three of the cards? Who thinks I need to turn over two of the cards? Who thinks I need to turn over one of the cards? Okay. Who, don't, who thinks I don't need to turn over any cards? <laughs> Interesting. Uh, most of you are right. I need to turn over two cards. So let's see which ones you think I need to turn over. Do I need to, do I need to turn over the blue card? Okay, everyone agrees. The red card? No. Okay. The eight? Yes. The three? Interesting. Okay. I think, now, you're all very smart, okay? So it's a bit of a mix. But I think most of you said the blue card the eight. Now, let's find out if that's right. Well, do we have to turn over the blue card? You all agree we have to turn over the blue card? Of course we do, because we have to find out whether it's even on the other side. So it obeys the rule. Do we have to turn over the red card? No, because the rule is about blue cards. Blue cards must be even on the other side. Red cards can do what they like. Red cards can be odd, they can be even, it doesn't matter, okay? The eight, do we have to turn the eight over? A lot of people said yes, but 
here's the thing. We don't have to turn it over because if the eight is blue on the other side, then it obeys the rule. But what if it's red on the other side? It obeys the rule as well because red cards can do anything. It doesn't matter what's on the other side of the eight. If it's blue or red, the rule is still being obeyed and I don't have to turn it over to check because it can be red or it can be blue. The final card, do we have to turn that one over? Yes, right, we've worked it out. Because what if it turns out to be blue on the other side? The rule has been broken because the blue card uh, is, uh, has got a three on the other side. So the, so the rule has been broken. So we do have to check yard card. And it's amazing how many people don't get that right. The majority of people you ask on the street will say, turn over the blue card and turn over the eight. But that is wrong. And some people speculate that this is because of something called confirmation bias, which is that if we have an idea about something that we think is true, we only look for evidence that proves that we're right. And we don't look for evidence that disproves that we're right. What I really love about this puzzle, though, is that if I change the phrasing of the puzzle slightly, we'll all get it right instantly. So I'm going to show you the same puzzle now, but I'm going to set it in a bar. It's in a pub, okay? So we're in a pub now. Now, what is the rule about drinking alcohol in a pub? Does anyone know the rule? Yeah? You can't unless you're over 18. You have to be 18 or older to drink alcohol in a pub. Did you all know that? Most of you, a lot of you knew that. Okay, so you have to be 18 or older to be drinking in a pub. Now, these four people here, we know, excluding the bar person, uh, uh, this person is drinking wine. This person is drinking Ribena. This person is 31 years old and this person is 15 years old. It's the same puzzle, but now it should be obvious. Do we have to find out how old the person drinking wine is? Of course we do. We have to make sure she's over 18. Do we have to find out how old the person drinking Ribena is? Of course not. Anyone can drink Ribena. Do we have to find out what the 31-year-old is drinking? A 31-year-old can drink anything. It doesn't matter. She can be drinking Coke Zero or she could be drinking wine. It's fine. Um, do we have to find out what the 15-year-old is drinking? We do, because if the 15-year-old is drinking Guinness, <laughs> then she's breaking the rules. She's breaking the rules. Um, okay. Isn't that interesting? Our humans are social creatures, and without being consciously aware of it, we are, um, we are really sensitive to the social rules uh, that keep us civilized, basically. Um, and so when we know about rules like this, we're very good at applying them. If you make them abstract and you make them about playing cards with red and blue and that sort of stuff, we're not very good at it. We are very good at social rules. Um, okay, this is, uh, who's that guy? Don't know. Um, okay, so uh, this is another thing I wanna try. God, this has been great, trying things for the first time. It's really worked out. So uh, I'm gonna try something else now. Um, uh, I want to see if uh, I can detect the difference between fake randomness and real randomness. Because my theory is that human brains aren't very good 
at being random, truly random, okay? I'm gonna try and get some coins out of my pocket to try and prove this. Okay, so what I need is four volunteers who can <laughs> toss a coin. Okay, so uh, let's go for uh, you, and let's go for you, and let's go for you, and let's go for you, going like that in the red top, brilliant, yes. Okay, so I have my four volunteers. Now, uh, I'm going to uh, put two coins on the table here, okay? So have I got four volunteers? Oh, I've got another one coming down. Now, I'm also gonna give all of you uh, sheets of paper, okay? They have A, B, and C written on them. And I'm gonna leave them here, okay? Uh, two of you are gonna take a coin, right? And you have to decide amongst yourselves who's gonna have the coin and who isn't. Okay, and then you're going to pick uh, A, B, C, and D. Okay, once you've picked your piece of paper, you have to try and remember your letter. Okay, because uh, because I need to not cheat. Okay, so here's the thing: two of you are going to take a coin, and you're going to toss the coin uh, twenty times. Right? Okay, ten times. And uh, fifteen. Um, okay, you're going to toss the toss toss the coin, toss the coin. Easy for you to say. Uh, no, let's do it 20 times. I believe in you. 20 times. And you're going to write down an H if it's heads. Do you know what I mean by heads? If it's got the queen's head on it. Yeah? And then you're going to write a T if it's tails. Okay? So that's the tail. That's the head. Do you recognize heads and tails? Okay. So on the piece of paper, I'm going to see a big list of H's and T's according to the, the way that coins have been tossed. The two people that don't have the coins, okay, whoever that's going to be, you're just going to write down a sequence of H's and T's. And you're going to make it seem as random as possible, okay? Because you're going to try and trick me into thinking the H's and T's that you've written down have come from a real coin being tossed, okay? So you have to try and fake the randomness of a coin toss, okay? So I'm going to turn my back, and uh, you decide uh, who's going to have the coin amongst yourselves. Don't say anything, though, otherwise I might get a clue. Uh, uh, well, maybe someone tell me when you're done. Done, okay. So, uh, I need to not see the, okay. Also, take a sheet, uh, take a sheet of paper. Okay. Have you all got a sheet of paper? Okay. So, uh, I'm going to give you uh, these four pens as well. Okay. Now, this bit I haven't thought through. So, I need you to go somewhere. Uh, and toss the coins, or not toss the coins, depending on who you are. Maybe, is there room in that corner there for you to do it without me seeing? I'll try and just look this way while you're doing it. Okay. And don't talk amongst yourselves. Don't give each other tips about how to fake coin tosses or anything. If you're the ones faking the coin tosses, don't just copy the other people with the coins. <laughs> no, no talking to each other. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> That's going to take a little while. So, I thought I'd do uh, a touch-based uh, illusion with you. Now, uh, this is one that you can all do in your seats, but I'm going to show you how to do it up here. It works best with uh, uh, men, and it works best with adults. So, I need an adult male volunteer. Uh, ideally, with sleeves that can be rolled up or, or are already short. Um, 
you seem to be being volunteered. So a uh, round of applause uh, for my, um, I want to say volunteer. Uh, so you, you, you come around here, so I'm not looking towards the people that are tossing coins and stuff like this. Now, um, what I'm going to do, if you don't mind, I'm going to uh, put my finger on your wrist, and I'm just going to move my finger up to the crook of your elbow, okay? But you're going to have your eyes closed when I do it, and you have to say stop when I get to the crook of your elbow, right? Okay. If I go past the crook of your elbow, you've lost, okay? So you want to try and get as close to the crook as you can without going over, okay? So nice and straight. You cheated by touching it in the bank, but it's fine. It should be fine. Okay, all right, here we go. You do it nicely. Close your eyes. I'm going slowly, mainly because I know it's going to take ages to do the coin thing. did really badly. So <laughs> everyone, can, it, can everyone see how terribly he did? Yeah, okay. So look, there's the crook. There's the crook. So it's about, we're about you're about, a, you know, I don't know what, three or four centimeters out, um, which is totally normal. Round of applause for my volunteer. Um, so uh, if you've got someone sitting next to you, you can do that with, have, have a go now. See, uh, and see okay, the, the trick is to go really slowly really slowly with your finger, about the speed that I did it, okay? And close your eyes. Are you all finished? Okay, so um, put the coins down on the table so I don't know who had them. Have you, have you all remembered your... Who's out by a centimeter? Who's out by two centimeters? Three centimeters? Oh, four centimeters? Hey, five centimeters? <laughs> a shame, like, yes, I was. Oh, you. <laughs> Good stuff, that's interesting. Okay, it's time, and I think this is the final bit, and then uh, we've probably got about five minutes for questions as well. So, okay. Um, I've got the heads and tails are back in. I'm going to make my predictions now. So A, uh, where was A? Who had A? Over here. Uh, I think you were um, tossing a coin. Oh. <laughs> Shut up. Um, darn it, that's really annoying. Um, B, I think you were tossing a coin. <laughs> okay, okay. 
Uh, oh, no, no, I meant it the other way around. I actually meant it the other way around. Uh, I, uh, I okay, I mean, obviously, I can do the last two, but... <laughs> so, C and D were tossing a coin. Okay, um, that's so annoying. I genuinely meant it the other way That's so annoying. Um, but at least I know it worked. Um, um, <laughs> I mean, there's definitely... There's no way you believe me, and that's the annoying part. Um, I got it exactly the wrong way around. That's so interesting. Th well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> what a way to end the show. Um, that genuinely is the end of the show. Um, I, I wanted to finish on something that I've not tried before. Um, I, I'll, explain, uh, I'll explain the logic, because um, th and this is genuinely, okay, so if there's someone, if you know someone you want to try this on who isn't in the room, so isn't going to see this, try this out. So... Uh, the people who uh, made up the coin tosses, so you made up the coin toss, you made up the coin toss, um, you didn't put enough heads or tails in a row at once. So the maximum number of heads and tails you put in a row was you had tails, tails, tails. Okay? And you had, the longest you had was you had heads, heads, heads. So the longest number of heads or tails you had in a row was three. Okay? And that's because... If humans see four heads or four tails in a row in a sequence of 20, that doesn't seem random. But it is. It's actually quite likely in 20 coin tosses to get four or more heads or tails in a row, which you can see from the ones who, who did uh, toss the coins. Who actually did it? So you and where was the other one? You as well. Okay. So look, in the, in the real coin tosses, we've got heads, 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 heads. <laughs> And in this one, we've got tails, 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 tails. And that was random. So look, if you want get, to uh, get a friend of yours to, uh, to toss a coin 20 times and write down the sequence, and then to make up a sequence, actually get them to make it up first and then toss the coin, um, you'll be able to guess which is which, and you'll, you'll amaze your friends, uh, unlike I just did. Um, um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of my talk. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Steve. Um, I'm sure you're going to love this one. Um, yes. We have a throwable microphone. So if, anyone, Amazing. Has any, if <laughs> okay. anyone has any questions that they'd like to ask, just stick Does anyone out. have a question or would like this to be thrown at them? <laughs> uh, yes. Do you have a question or did you just want that to be thrown at you? Great. Throw it back. Awesome. <laughs> Who actually has a question? Yes. Now, normally people with science backgrounds aren't good at throwing, but that was actually all right, wasn't it? Uh, yes, what was your question? How do you explain a mirage in a desert? Okay, that's a very good question. How do you explain a mirage in a desert? So um, that's not to do with uh, your... Okay, so there's two types of mirage, okay? Uh, there's, the, uh, there's basically the, the heat shimmer type of mirage, which is where just above the surface of the ground, the air is incredibly hot because uh, of the, the sand underneath being hot. And if you've got a, a, a layer of air that's really hot below a layer of air that's slightly cooler, then they're different densities. And this is something you might know already. Light bends when it passes from um, you know, air to glass. So look, if I put my eye 
in there. Can you see my eye kind of moves around? That's because the light is bending as it passes through the, the glass and the water. And light also bends when it passes from uh, cool, dense air to hot, um, less dense air. So you've got that layer of air uh, above the sand. Uh, it, it bends the light and it causes this shimmer. That's a one type of mirage is where you see a beautiful uh, oasis that isn't really there. Um, I'm not sure what causes that or if it's even a real thing. Um, <laughs> any other questions? Up in the back corner here. Okay, cool. If you keep your hands up and we'll try and get some roving mics to you as well. Yes, what's your question? How many, how many heads or tails can you get if, if, you, to if you toss a coin a hundred times? Uh, that is a really good question. So, uh, how many? So you think how many how many heads might you get in a row if you toss a coin a hundred times? Seventy. <laughs> <laughs> Why? That's an interesting. I, I like it though. Uh, it's a good question. Uh, the the point is, so the the more the more you toss a coin, the more likely you are to get longer and longer runs of heads. So all heads in a row, or all tails in a row. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head how many you would expect. It's definitely something you can Google, though. Uh, I'm just wondering if I've got internet access here. Uh, I don't, but you literally, you could Google, like, how many heads in a row for 100 coin tosses, and you probably, you know, it, it's quite a complicated equation to, to, to work out the answer until you start dealing with really, really big numbers. Um, uh, good question. I'm going to say about 20. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's not that. It'll be about 10, probably. Um, yes, who else? Shall I chuck this one? That was dreadful. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Back to the. And you, did you have a question? Great. Thank you. Yeah. So up here first. Um, why did the when you put the hands in the water? Why did they go hot and cold? So when uh, so there's 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 kind of there's two ways of looking at why you feel different things. Um, the first is uh, the way your body reacts to uh, hot and cold. So um, your, your body protects you from heat and it protects you from cold. So one thing that will happen is um, that the, um, the veins, and that's through the arteries, should I say, that, that bring blood to my fingers, they uh, contract to stop sending blood to my fingers. And that's to prevent my hands uh, getting too cold uh, or to prevent uh, the blood in my hands getting too cold and, and passing that coldness to the rest of my body. Um, uh, and so uh, your hand reacts in the opposite way when you put it in cold water, um, which means then your, 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 your two hands are then more sensitive to uh, the opposite. So if you put your hand in cold water, it then becomes more sensitive to hot water. If you put your hand in hot water, it becomes more sensitive to cold water. Um, and uh, the other explanation is to do with uh, how our sense of temperature works. By the way, just a, as a more broad point, how many senses do we have? <laughs> so I've had five, six, a million. Um, it's, not, it, it's not five, though there are five what we call traditional senses, uh, which is it's an old idea. They still, still teach it in schools, but... In reality, we have all these other perception, uh, 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 senses like a sense of balance. Um, we have a sense of temperature. Uh, we have a sense of pressure. So our sense of temperature uh, is, is relative uh, uh, because of the mechanics of the way those senses work. Um, you can only tell 
the difference between two temperatures, it's hard to tell absolute temperature. So the way those, those receptors in your hands uh, are sensing temperature uh, means that you, you know, it tells you different things when you hit the middle. It's not, sorry, that's not the best explanation. I hope it gives you some idea. Uh, 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 yes, yeah, uh, I, I, I saw one down here. Okay, oh. cool. This okay, yeah, last down one here. down here as well. Um, if you can someone else look at the same colour, if you and someone else look at the same colour and see something different, why is that happening? Uh, is that a philosophical question? As in, like, when I see red, do you, is it the same experience as when you see red? Or? Yeah. Well, f first of all, that, uh, the sort of philosophical question is quite hard to answer because um, I can't know what it's like for you to experience red uh, versus my experience of red. But I, what I can do is test your reactions to different things. And it seems like um, people only react differently to the same color stimulus if there is something actually mechanically different in their eye. So for example, uh, if you're colorblind, so um, you have these different receptors in the back of your eyes for different parts of the color spectrum. So there's, p uh, oversimplifying, but there's parts of your eye that are sensitive to, the, to red, parts of your eyes that are sensitive to green, parts of your eyes that are sensitive to blue. Uh, if you're colorblind, you might not have the, the ones for green, for example. Um, in which case, you, you know, your experience of green is going to be totally different to someone else who has those receptors in their eye. Um, a question over here? Yep. Yes? This will be the last one. Sorry, guys. Uh, I'll, I'll hang around. I mean, as I'm packing down, come and have a word, and then I'll be at the back as well. Uh, thank you for all the questions. It's amazing. Oh, um, I'm going to be... Yeah, I'll be out in the corridor. Yeah, cool. After I, I'll pack down, then I'll be out in the corridor. Yes? Out of all the different tricks you've played on us and different things you've played as an experiment, which is your favourite? Oh, that's a good question. Which is my favourite? Um, my favourite is probably the, the, f the four card one, the one to the four cards. Just because like, it's, it's not to do with our senses, it's to do with you know, how, we, uh, how we make decisions and how, uh, how we use our sort of sense of logic, if you like. You know, it, it turns out that you know, as, as, as clever as we might be, like I fell for that one as well, as clever as we might be, we can really get tripped up uh, with, with really simple ideas. And isn't that isn't that amazing? One of the most important things in science is to be aware of the fact that our brains don't work very well. You know, the process of science is, rem is uh, removing any mistakes that come from um, you know, uh, thinking like the four card problem, you know, where you've got, uh, where you might turn over the wrong card. So the, the process of science is almost recognizing that our brains aren't very good at thinking about things. <laughs> yeah. That was a great final question. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Steve. <laughs> if you do have questions, that's fine, but please wait outside to ask them. Don't come down to the front.